0: You're listening to With Intolerance, a podcast for machinists, by machinists. I'm your host, Dylan Jackson of Proteum Machining, and this week I am rejoined by John Resikoff of JSP Fab. Welcome back.
1: Good to be back.
0: And first off, I have to thank you because I think it was after your episode that you were like, hey, you should make a consistent intro to the podcast. And you're like, how about the, how does this sound? So <laughs> I, I owe consistency to you bugging me about it.
1: I think it's good to have something that you don't have to think about when you're starting something, you know, cause it changes your thought process.
0: Yeah, it definitely simplifies my, my intro and not, I can think about interviewing and not like, oh, how am I going to introduce <laughs> this and not sound like an idiot? Yeah. But so welcome back. You've had a lot of change since the last time for anybody who wants to hear John's backstory, he was on in episode 77. So head on back there, listen to that if you want his backstory, but this time I'm having you back on because you've had a lot of change, shop moves, new machines, all that. So let's get into it. What's What's been going on?
1: So I think the last time that we talked was about this time last year, roughly. And this time of year, we have a Black Friday sale, which is our busiest time of year. We usually do I don't know, about two months of sales in a week's period of time. And then that basically uh, keeps us super busy till the end of the year. So we're in the middle of going through that right now. But this time last year, during that Black Friday, we had also moved our home. We were living in Escondido, um, or living in Bonsall, and we ended up buying a house in Fallbrook, which is a small little town outside of San Diego. It's about 30,000 people. And uh, when we moved the, our house here to Fallbrook, there's basically one industrial area of Fallbrook, and we wanted to try to move our shop here. So while we were looking for the home, we came by the industrial area, saw a lease unit, lease for available for lease unit. We called on it. They said that the tenant was planning to move out, but they didn't have an exact date. And we basically like committed to it indefinitely, you know, per that it wasn't going to go on forever because our lease agreement at our old place was up January of 2021. So we sort of hung around the old shop extending our lease one month at a time hoping that our landlord wasn't going to get super angry you know we told him that we were moving (laughs) out and then we ended up moving into this place the end of april i believe of this year and it's just like been a complete game changer for the business it's been really awesome
0: yeah it looks fantastic and how much more space do you have
1: now so the old shop was about 1200 square feet and had a hundred square foot office in the front and the rest was shop space. And it had a hundred amps of three phase power. So this new shop is a 3000 square foot floor pan, uh, floor plan about 1200 square feet is office, 1800 is shop space. And then there's a fully built out mezzanine above the office. So it's like another 1200 square feet and it has a 400 amps of three phase.
0: Jeez, that's such an upgrade because yeah. I'm working with about what you have or what you had at your 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 other shop. Like I've got a thousand square feet, maybe a little under a hundred square foot office and a hundred amps of three phase. And it, yeah. it's pretty limiting. Like you start, I've got three machines in there now and plus all the support equipment. And it's like, man, this is, this is tight. Like I'm, I'm actively changing out like old tables and desks to kind of work my way vertical so I can have more space because it's like well I'm I'm at the limit now like we're not moving this second so I, I've got to make this a little more comfortable.
1: Yeah after being in my old shop for so many years it turned into like that shop where you know you just have like shoulder room between everything because you just find ways to like compile and pack things in but still be able to walk around and it just makes things sort of miserable to work in you know you lose a lot of table space and then Things like you know, like chip barrels and bins and moving things around just bumps into everything. And you know, two people <laughs> walk down one part of the shop at the same time. Want us to turn around and go the other way?
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm currently struggling with chip bins. We have to make a run this weekend because we have filled every single chip bin we have. They're taking up a bunch of room, and then I I have no place for chips. Like I think I'm today or tomorrow. I'm probably just gonna throw out like a few, you know five gallon bags of chips in the dumpster because I just don't have any place to put them anymore. So it sucks.
1: Yeah. I remember having sort of, cause we have a recycling service that comes with 55 gallon drums and it would basically be like the drums would just line the shop floor between all the machines at nighttime. And then you come in in the morning and you have to like pull all the drums out of the working space to, to make room to work. And it was just a repeat process every single day, but now uh, a little bit more space. We were adamant about sort of like having a little bit of thought process, putting the new shop together. So all the chip bins don't leave the, they have a an assigned area by the main bay door. They never leave that area. Same thing. We have like a material rack that's right next to the bay door. So we're not lugging material in and out of the shop needlessly stuff like that, that it's like, you know, the quality of life improvements versus. Making new. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Just sort of getting by.
0: Yeah. So you also added a machine when you guys moved, right?
1: So we actually did a lot of machinery changes. The old shop, I had the 2019 VF2SS 97 Akuma MX45 and a 2019 Haas Super Mini Mill and then the Miano BNC34. And when we moved the shop, the goal was to get rid of the uh, Akuma because it was pretty unreliable for us. And it was sort of like usually broken about half of the year. And then after owning the Mini Mill for about two years, it was very clear that it wasn't going to work long-term for us. There was a lot of issues, just sort of working working issues with it. So we figured at the same time, we'd get rid of that machine as well. So before the move, the month before the move, we sold the MX45 Akuma. That actually sold pretty quickly because of how cheap I was selling it for. And I gave a bunch of extra parts with it. But the Super Mini Mill, I thought I had it priced really competitively. And it was taking a little bit longer to sell than I wanted. And I did not want to move it to the new shop. So I ended up selling it to a guy in Arizona for basically what turned out to be a really good deal for him. And so that left us also only having to move two big pieces of machinery, the VF2 and the Miano, which probably saved us a bit of money on the move too. I, I knew that after owning the mini mill, I wasn't going to do another really small machine. So so after we knew that the mini mill wasn't going to work, it sort of decided like, you know, what what do you want to replace it with? The purpose of the mini mill was to have a third reliable spindle mill spindle in the shop and the shop was tiny so i wanted something with a super small footprint that i could you know if i had to move around with a pallet jack and and whatnot so that served its purpose but it it was not what i needed it to be so i basically was sort of looking for a machine to mirror the vf2 something really similar to it and uh, i was also looking for an extended wide travel machine and uh, luckily 2015 VF one with the extended wide travel popped up on eBay. And I basically messaged a dude right away and purchased it. We could talk about the upgrades and stuff that come on the machines later, but that's a, it's a basic VF VF one with the extended wide travel. And then I wanted to try something different. Uh, I wanted to look into like the DM series hauses. I think I was talking about it the last episode. And so, you know, it's really enticing watching DM, DM ones and DM twos and DTs run. So I figured I'd give the, give it a shot. I lined up purchase of a super low, super low hours DM2, and that was in NorCal. And this is the interesting part about purchasing machinery. Obviously, that's not anywhere near you. And if you don't plan to go look at it, it's like you can pay somebody to go inspect it, but you don't necessarily get all of the information from it. So it passed inspection. Everything looked good on it. And then I just asked the guy for like the error report on the machine, which, which hostel just, you know, you can easily, email, an error report from the machine. I opened it up and it was basically like looking at a uh, car fax of a car that had been in 25 accidents. It was just like alarm, 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 like short wire fault, like just an insane amount of stuff. And then I messaged the guy. I was like, yo, what's this all about? And he's like, oh yeah, we had to have like five service calls for Y-axis problems and the vector drive died and we had to replace it and this other alarm kept coming up and i'm like yeah i don't know if this is going to be the machine for me like that i think the machine had like 400 hours on it and it had basically like the alarm history of a 20 year old machine i was like that sounds a bit like a lemon to me
0: yeah no joke
1: so backed out of that one sort of last minute and then i wanted to i didn't you you're in this interesting predicament when you're moving your shop that you sort of want to try to align everything to happen at the same time because it makes it a lot easier. And so I sort of scrambled to find another machine, ended up finding another DM2 that was in Arizona and uh, worked out a deal pretty quickly with the guy and he was able to ship that over. So got everything moved in. Now we got three Haas machines and the- That's awesome.
0: It's it sounds like a big upgrade, you know. You now have three reliable machines and you're you're making chips.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's probably really easy to forget what things were like as things get better. You know, like I, I look back and I think about running the Akumas and like every morning turning the machine on and like, you know, it goes through its warm up or startup procedure. And then, you know, two times out of the year, you would just get it an alarm and it wouldn't turn on.
0: Yeah. I felt the exact same way with the Kitamura. It was like, okay, Is this going to be the day that I'm like going (laughs) to have to figure out something and, you know, play doctor or can I actually make chips today?
1: Yeah. And that's, it's just like, it's not, it's not comforting to run your business like that because you know that it's going to break on the least opportune time.
0: Yeah. Well, I just had uh, Nick from P3D Creations on and he was saying the same thing. Like he started his business with a bunch of, Machines that, you know, needed to repair and, and were broken and he got for really cheap because of it. And then now he's in the same mindset of like, I just need to make chips. Like I need to spend money and just make chips. I can't, I can't fix stuff anymore.
1: Right. Yeah. It's a, it's a weird thought process because if I looked back to when I bought my first Akuma, not knowing if I was going to make, you know, continue to machine parts and do what we're doing now, it's daunting to go like, oh, do I buy a newer machine? Because you go like, well, it's expensive. (laughs) So you look for a good deal on something, not realizing that the long-term maintenance cost and the cost of it breaking down and you can't make parts or get work done pretty much exceeds the additional monthly cost of having a newer piece of equipment. For the most part, you know, obviously within reason, like for example, the the VF1 that I bought, a 2015 VF1, and it was like with the fourth axis, it was basically like 40 grand and oh wow and the first akuma that i bought was almost 30 and it was 20 years old and pretty problematic so in hindsight when i bought the first one for like 30 grand i should have just been like well for another 10 grand i could get something that's 15 years newer you know and uh much easier to repair yeah
0: yeah i, I think used machines like make sense for sure but yeah for the most part if they're not like a, a newer used machine If you can't get a deal where it's like, I can double the price of this machine and still not touch a new machine or a lightly used machine, then it's probably not the best idea.
1: Yeah, also, I think I talked about it last time too, but anybody looking to buy a machine, especially a used machine, should 100% look into who the service place that's going to handle it is you know, the parts availability, call them and just be like, hey, do you have these y axis way covers in stock or something, you know, and then sort of weigh that on whether or not if something goes down, if you're going to wait 30 days to get a part or something, you know, versus like, I I really do love the Akuma machines, but every time I need a Haas part, I literally just call them in the morning and I buy the part and it is dropped off on my door the next morning. And there's like 0% chance that was happening with Akuma.
0: Right. Yeah. It was the same with our Kitamura. Like the, we have, I think Kitamura text locally, but the control, the Yasnak, like the nearest service for that was out of California. So at minimum, if we had flew somebody, we had to fly somebody out to look at it. And it would have been, I think, two grand before they even looked at the machine. You know, it was like per diem and rental car and hotel and, you know, airfare and like all of that plus whatever hourly they ended up using to to find stuff so it was it's rough like you definitely want to look into your support network
1: yeah and the worst part about it too is that you think that it's basically like going to the doctor where they look at you and they go they give you a diagnosis and then they give you medication but it's a 100% not like that most of the time they show up and they just do what you were already doing, like researching online, basically, or asking somebody else, hey, this is the alarm, what could it be? And then they just check, they poke around a little bit, and they, but most of the time, they pretty much just start swapping out parts to see if it fixes it, you know, and a lot of times it doesn't. And then they go like, oh, well, I don't have this part on the truck to fix it, so I'm going to have to order that. I'll come back in a week after the part arrives, and we'll try that. And there's, it's very often, from my experience, that it doesn't get fixed the first time they come out.
0: Yeah, well, I I think a lot of companies don't have factory trained technicians too, you Mm -hmm. know, like they're, they're trained by the company that distributes the machine very often, but like that only means that they only know the problems that they've already seen in that company. Like, I I know for sure that the last problem we had with the Kitamura before we sold it, maybe I want to say this problem was like a year and a half, two years ago, maybe three years ago at this point, I don't know, but the, servo for the tool changer lost its battery. Like we had thought we had changed every single battery in the cabinet and missed one that was like buried on a circuit board somewhere. And so one day the tool changer just stopped working and through this weird error that we couldn't find. And like, we went through every single manual and couldn't find it. We went through all these places online. We tried a whole bunch of stuff, couldn't get it to work. Right. And then it ended up like buried on YouTube somewhere in some yaskawa drive video from some repair place in the midwest they were like oh like if this happens you need to pull the cable out and short these two wires while trying to trigger the servo and that <laughs> resets the, the encoder pulses and then it'll home itself finally and like we were like there's no way this freaking gonna work and like we did all the work to get to the servo and unplugged it and, and like thank god it worked but I know for a fact that there's no way any service tech would have like known that right off the bat you know they would have spent 30 hours getting to the same point we did and then charged us thousands and thousands of dollars so yeah it's it's tough
1: i think part of that can also be blamed on the machine manufacturers their service manuals being you know made written in japanese converted to english (laughs) that doesn't make a lot of sense and is not very helpful at all. Like, you know, you open up the, the Webster's dictionary of fixing your machine and it's like, it doesn't, it does not tell you how to fix anything. It's just a bunch of words on the paper.
0: Yeah. Well, Kitamura was notorious for putting like the, like they would put like very common things in their books, but then you would contact them and there would be like 30 or 40 service bulletins that were like diving into the nitty gritty of possible problems. But like, if Mm -hmm. you didn't know to go to them, you would never know how to fix any of this stuff. Like we had, I I think the machine came with three or four of them in the book that the old owner had, had called up Kittimer and gotten copies of. And then we got maybe another three or four while we owned it because we would call or email Kittimer and they'd be like, Oh yeah, yeah, Check out this document. And you're like, well, why wasn't this all included in the manual when the machine first shipped? Like this is pretty (laughs) Need to know
1: knowledge. Yeah, you probably didn't have the first year machine.
0: Right. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. It's crazy. So you you have these three machines, and you were actually talking about chips earlier, and we've kind of talked offline. What? How are you guys dealing with chips right now? Because I know that's kind of a pain point, and you said you leave your chip bins over by the bay door. So how are you getting them from the machines to the the bay and and all that?
1: So... After having the two Akumas that didn't have any type of conveyor or auger or anything on them and we had to manually clean them out, it was clear that that was never going to happen on any machine that we had again. So every every machine we have now has an auger on it. So at least it has a chip chute at the side of it, which helps with chip evacuation. But again, Haas's design on their chip chutes, they designed it about six inches shorter than a 55-gallon uh, barrel. Oh, so, no! <laughs> so you can either like <laughs> chop up barrels so that it can drop into it, or you basically just use like Rubbermaid or Brute trash cans underneath the thing. And then once they fill up, you roll them over to the chip in and dump them into it. So that's what we're doing right now. Each machine's just got a plastic, I don't know, 40 gallon trash can, and then it fills up and you go dump it.
0: All right. That doesn't sound too bad.
1: No, it's, I mean, it, It's, it's night and day better than what we used to have to do. Like manually cleaning out machines.
0: Yeah, there, there's not much that feels more like a waste of a time in a shop than like manually cleaning out stuff. Like the, I I sent you a a picture and like the brothers at least dump it in the back (laughs) so I can keep running the machines while they, while I clean out the chip tray. But like, yeah, it it just, you get to the point where again, you want to be making chips and not maintaining stuff. So I, I totally understand.
1: And and alternatively, it's like it's pretty dangerous actually to be if you're cleaning out like steel chips out of a machine, you know, and you've got like gloves on and, you know, you got tools to try to scrape chips from one end to another. And you know, it it, it was pretty much every time you cleaned out a machine, you came out of there and your hands were like at least four or five cuts on them and you had to like, you know, wash your hands off and go dry it and clean it. And it was just like a very terrible quality of life thing.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. My last job, one of the guys, he, like they had cut proof gloves that they would use to clean out the lathes. And even mm. then I think at one point I want to say it was either titanium or stainless steel and it wrapped around his finger and cut straight through the glove and almost straight down to the bone Yeah, on one of his fingers. And it, it was terrible.
1: Yeah. It's no joke. It's no joke. <clears throat> And the only reason that I didn't think about it when I bought my first Akuma was because I bought my first Akuma out of the first CNC shop that I worked in. And so like my first day of of experiencing CNC machines when I worked in that shop was, hey, we're switching jobs, go clean out that machine. And so I just thought it was normal, you know? Oh, it's normal. You, everybody <laughs> everybody does this in a CNC machine shop. Everybody spends an hour cleaning out the inside of their machine when they switch a job. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it, it shouldn't be that way for sure,
1: but yeah, so Go ahead. tell me about your
0: new products too, because you kind of came out, we we talked over DM that like you came out with one of your first, I don't want to say movable products, but like maybe more product assemblies and that I want to hear, you know, how that all came to be.
1: So this, this year we released a shifter that we've been working on for probably about 10 months. Um, heavily for about four or five months. And looking back at our entire product line, most of the stuff that we make is either some sort of an adapter bracket, like a hard component that just fits one piece and attaches it to another piece or a cosmetic upgrade or something. Most of it is really simple, you know, one or two components, some hardware that holds it together, maybe a coating or an engraving or something like that, maybe some dowel pins, whatnot. But this was a first A part that we're releasing that was sort of like a all original device, or I don't know, basically an assembly that has many moving components, you have to design it from nothing, you're not just attaching one thing to another, you have to create the entire thing. And then when it's all said and done, it was something like about 50 different components, including hardware. So it's, it became almost a project to manage, figuring out the cost of the parts, the cycle times of each machine component, and just sort of managing it all to be able to assemble it all. So it's been like a very steep learning curve compared to pretty much every single other product that we've ever made.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it. And what kind of, I mean, you put it on your car for testing, right? And then Mm -hmm. just kind of drove around with that for a while. And did you release any beta units as well for testing or how did that go about?
1: So m- originally my plan, it's its sort of a long story because when I started working on this shifter, I didn't have a car to test it on. So the shifter is designed for the Toyota Altezza J160 transmission, which is here in the U.S., the Lexus IS300 from around the year 2000, the first one that had like the quote-unquote Altezza taillights. They had a six-speed manual transmission against the 3SGE four-cylinder engine. In most other countries, besides here in the U S here in the U S it got a two J Z with a W series transmission. But so the shifter is designed specifically for that transmission and I didn't have one, so the, the options were design these shifter parts, send them off to customers for feedback and then hope that the feedback was something that was valuable to make changes. And just from personal experience, working with products and customers, that's okay generally for fitment. Like people will tell you like it fits or it doesn't fit, but it's very difficult to get uh, feedback on feel on whether something feels good in their hand or is operating correctly or whatnot. So I decided that it was pretty important that I tested it myself. So (laughs) that, that sent me down the road of having to put that transmission into my car using an adapter plate from another company and getting it all put together. But in the end, I'm much happier that I was able to put all the mileage on it myself and do all the destructive testing myself and, you know, feel the difference between the different changes and improvements myself. I think that that actually sped up the process at the end.
0: Well, and you had said, I think on Instagram that you really liked that transmission too, right? That it was a pretty significant improvement.
1: Yeah. And, and oddly enough, funny enough. When I first put it in with like the original shifter relocation kit that we have which just puts the stock shifter in a location that fits into a Toyota Corolla. I drove it and I was like, wow, this is not that great. You know, it does not, (laughs) (laughs) it does not feel like a sports car. It feels like a, a pickup truck or something like that, which Toyota has always been like that. None of Even their sporty model vehicles, none of them have like a very precision feel when you're driving them. They're just robust and some of them are, you know, sort of higher performance, but they don't feel precise. You know, it's not like you think about a Ferrari that has a gated shifter and it like clicks into each gear, you know, precisely. Toyotas just don't, that's not their thing, you know? So that's what it felt like. And once I started working on this new shifter, it was very clear that getting rid of every single overly insulated rubber bushing and whatnot on the assembly totally changed the way the transmission feels. And it goes from being this like whatever sloppy truck feel transmission to now it feels very precise, much closer to like a Honda S2000 or something. I don't know if you've ever driven one.
0: No, I haven't, but I think I know what you're talking about because Brad has a, or he, yeah, he still has a 260Z mm-hmm. and he put the 240SX box in there with the B&M short shifter. Uh-huh. And that to this day is still probably one of the best gearboxes I've ever felt. Like it is so positive, zero shake in any direction. I, both him and I still just can't believe that it's as good as it is. So, and I think I know what you're talking about where it's just like, it's what you want to drive.
1: Yeah. And it's just so, it's so strange to know that the OE manufacturer was okay releasing, you know, the stock shifter because it, it, it's obviously clear that they have the ability to make it feel better but they just choose something along the lines of like, well, we don't want it to vibrate or rattle and it needs to be comfortable. And, you know, we don't want any heat transfer through it. And their, their goal is most likely to please the person that doesn't care about it, you know, versus trying to make something that people are passionate about or they enjoy it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. They definitely seem to to cater to the 80% a little more than some other manufacturers.
1: But that product's been a real roller coaster for us. We released it in October. It took about a month and a half of machining to get the first batch all put together, including coatings and organizing the hardware and ordering bearings and getting it all together. Even the assembly process is very tedious for me. And we put 50 shifters together and then we released them. And We sold all of them within the first 48 hours. And the goal, the goal was this was in October. The goal was to sell about half of them and then have the second half ready for our black Friday sale in November. And so we basically (sighs) totally screwed ourselves because like, well, now we got to make more of these. And we also don't have the time to build up our inventory of our normal products for black Friday. So it was like, we were planning to have the month before black Friday to build our inventory of product. Now we're remaking this new product that is extensive in time and personal labor you know
0: oh geez so, so yeah talk to me about black friday how it go this year and, and did you do anything differently to kind of have a little bit more stock on hand or you know how, how did you approach it
1: so one thing that we did this year that was different was that we started working on one thing we do every black friday is release like a new shift knob design or style or finish or something we started on that like I think April of this year. So we made about 300 shift knobs at the beginning of the year, and we sent them out to a coding place to get some samples done. And we were working on all the finishes basically six to eight months early, which took a lot of the stress off of, off of us to get ready for Black Friday. Another thing that changed was usually we release new products and we sort of decided not to do that this year as well because we wanted to just focus on having more of our products that we do normally stock in higher quantities that way we could fulfill all the orders much faster also from a sales standpoint releasing a new product is a good way to bump your sales for the month and in general december and january are slow months for us so we are trying to hold off on releasing new products until basically january so we've got a handful of new products to release in january that we probably could have released during this Black Friday sale. So That's all in smart, all that. Yeah, all in all, we didn't really, really release anything new and exciting, but sales were still sort of what we were expecting. And it was good. We you know we we probably had about, I don't know, two hundred and twenty-ish orders in the week, which is about again about about two months of sales for us, we're averaging between 100 and 200 orders a month. And so we're just now getting to the end of fulfilling them all. And we'll probably be able to relax, (laughs) you know, quote unquote, small business relax a little (laughs) bit before getting back into it.
0: That's great. No, I think that's really smart to hold the new products for the dip as well. Because I I think it, it seems like most machine shops in general see that dip in january like no matter what i don't know if it's just people kind of getting over the new years and stuff but like we we usually see that as well kind of interested to see where this january goes because we've been so busy but Mm -hmm. usually january february are our our slowest months of the year
1: for sure yeah yeah we're the same it's always been the same basically after the second week of december people stop buying stuff until the end of january almost like obviously you're still getting some orders, but it's much different than the rest of the year.
0: Well, I'm sure once the window for normal shipping in time for Christmas closes, everybody's like, all right, I'll hang off until yeah. after Christmas. For now, sure. We usually see orders right up until the 31st, cause everybody's trying to spend their budgets, like all the engineers, but then they go on holiday, you know, for a week or two, and then they come back and they're like, all right, I'm going to slowly get back into my projects and not order anything. It's like, oh, great. Okay.
1: But- yeah. The worst part about it when you're like, I remember when doing job shop stuff, the worst part is that you would most likely be for me at least delivering before the 31st, but not, not receiving purchase orders before then. So you'd like my last purchase orders for job shop stuff was usually the beginning of of uh, December. And then, so you're delivering all of that stuff at the end of the month to try to get it in. And then you don't get purchase orders until the m- probably second or third week of January. There's usually like this lull in the beginning. And yeah. then, so you start working and then you finish those the end of January, early February. But generally on net 30 terms, you don't see any money until <laughs> the end of February to the beginning of March. So exactly. your last paycheck comes in basically the beginning of January. And then you have a month of no money coming in.
0: Yeah, it, it's, it's tough. Like I'm really thankful for how busy we've been this year at the end of the year. Cause I think it'll, it should be more than enough to kind of subsist us and, and not really make me all that worry through mm-hmm. February or something like that, at least. So that's good.
1: I usually during that time would reach out to other places that I would do job shop for, uh, that were sort of not as frequent as my main customers, you know, ahead of time be like, Hey, I got some, I'm going to have machine time in January. You know, I can have quick turnaround for you, you know, no rush fee or whatever. Just basically incentivize somebody to place an order that you don't normally work with on a regular basis.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, well, and like we send out our ornaments, usually to our customers. And we also, I'll send out like a happy new year email or something like that to kind of, I guess, spur on business or just remind them that we're there, like, Hey, happy new year, by the way, <laughs> if you need anything machine, we got up in machine time. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But I mean, alternatively, you know, it could also be a time for you to do like shop improvements and work on other stuff when you don't normally have downtime.
0: Yeah, exactly. And there's, there's a lot of cleaning and reorganizing that I've been putting off because we've been so busy that I really need to get done. So I, I'm. I'm both hoping and not hoping that we have a week or two to kind of work on the shop. Like I, I want the work, but at the same time, yeah, it would be nice to kind of restructure a few things.
1: What, what sort of things would you, would you think about doing?
0: I really want to redo my end mill and drill storage. Like I've got all those shallower bins, but now that we've had them in there for so long, I'm really seeing which ones we use more often and need to be bigger versus which ones we don't really use and could be a a lot smaller. Like I, when I did my end mill drawer, I used all of the same size shallower bins for almost all of the size end mills, but like I've got two of them for quarter inch end mills and probably (laughs) those are both overflowing. Whereas like, (laughs) I don't know, five sixteenths has like one end mill in it or something like that. Cause I don't really use those that often. So I want to go back through and actually structure them the right size for our use case.
1: Do you, do you sort, like, let's say you have a shallower bin of quarter inch end mills. Do you separate, you know, your aluminum cutting, steel cutting, radius end, you know, stubby, extended, or do you just sort of have a general, like, these are my aluminum cutting end mills all to go together? How do you, how do you separate between the different types?
0: So yeah, I do aluminum cutting all the ball mills go together. Bull nose ones I try to separate out usually if I have space, but I don't separate and, and then steel. So I I separate by material, ball mills, bull nose if I can have the space, but I don't separate by length or anything. I just keep everything in the the tubes and just make sure I, I really, really try and I have since we started a company to keep the tubes that the tool came in and then put them back in that tube <laughs> when I put them away, because <clears throat> I hate just like loose carbide banging up against each other. And, and actually that's another shop improvement I need to do this winter is. I can't remember who it was on the discord, but somebody mentioned printing like a little holder with, you know, for me, it would be like 21 holes per machine. And when you're using an end mill, you just put the tube in the corresponding pocket hole. So like if I have a half inch end mill in tool 15, in tool 15 in like the little 3D printed 15 slot, there will be the fifth the half inch end mill tube. And that way I can just quickly pop them back in after I break down that job.
1: Yeah, that sounds <clears throat> that sounds really ideal, but what I'm finding is that as I start using different tools from different manufacturers, and then I've got like 17 different colors of little end mill boxes. I start to <laughs> not realize which end mill is which, you know, and then yeah. you start, have to like open up the box and look and see what's in it each time. Um, so it's a lot easier for me to visually see them exposed, but yeah, you don't really want them banging into each other. I, I try to mitigate that by laying them all sort of in line. If you open up your drawer in line with the Y axis versus in line with the X axis, so they don't oh, roll forward. Smart. They don't roll forward and backward as you open and close the drawer.
0: Yeah, that's smart. I like that. Yeah, it's it's tough. We've more or less nailed down the manufacturers we use for the most part as far as end mills. But I, I actually am trying some new ones pretty soon here. I've got some Frasia end mills coming in, hopefully in the next couple of days for a job. But for the most part, all the tubes are usually the same color. So I, I don't have too much of that issue. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's it's tough. Who are you guys using for end mills? Are you still using YG1 for the most part?
1: For the aluminum stuff, mostly YG1. One, I started buying a lot of Kyocera end mills, like small end mills. So they have like a whole bunch of really cool eighth inch shank, smaller than eighth inch shank tools. You know, like a lot of 30 seconds, 64, three-sixteenths end mills, seconds end mills. And they, they have a lot of really cool three flute, like a high helix angle, kind of like a YG one end mill that are very affordable where YG doesn't have a ton of selection on those really small sizes. So I've got a bunch of that Kyocera stuff, some Mitsubishi tools. And then I still do occasionally buy from helical, but not that much. I find that the YG selection of overlap with helical seems to perform better. Interesting.
0: Yeah, I've never been a big fan of Helical's aluminum tools. Mm -hmm. Like they always just seem kind of middle of the road, but with higher end pricing.
1: Yeah, I I like that they had a lot of options for extended tools like necked ball end mills because I I do quite a bit of surfacing and have to reach a lot of times. Uh And so they have a lot of different lengths on their necked back tools, which I liked. But what I found was I, Mm -hmm. for the most part, just use the one that's most universal. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't switch out the end mill to save half an inch of neck on it for one job and then go back to the other one. I usually just have. And and this probably is also something um, to think about is that I'm finding myself more and more frustrated with breaking down and setting up tool holders. And so now I have for like my ball end mills, instead of having a bunch of different length end mills and swapping it out for each job, I'm leaving them all in holders. And then I'll have one short, one medium, one long length ball, three eighths, one short, medium and long half inch, you know. And you can just pop them in. Yeah, and then it's, it's all visible. And then I, I guess you also don't have to worry about them banging into each other when they're in a holder. <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> yeah, That that's actually what I bought from Frasia for the most part was ball mills because I've got a really tight tolerance part with a lot of surfacing like some weird angles on it. Mm-hmm. And Frasia makes this. I, I had to buy them in metric because they don't have the same tolerance in their inch ones. But the tolerance on the radius, and they check it like 10 spots or something, or every five degrees all the way up to the tip, it's plus or minus 0.005 millimeters. Mm-hmm. So, so it's like about perfect. You know, that's two tenths. Plus or minus two tenths on the radius, so like I shouldn't have to comp it. And I, as long as the tool is set correctly, it should be perfect, more or so less. So there,
1: so the print that you're going off of has a tolerance on the fillet. It,
0: it's a very weird countersink kind of thing, and so it's got a weird angle on it. It's not like something I could buy a tool, or at least not a, a standard tool. I'd have to go to AB or something like that.
1: Oh, uh, so you're, you're surfacing a feature, and you want to make sure that it's it's accurate.
0: Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And they they have one that's supposed to be just perfect for that. I mean, not only is it really, really accurate, but it's supposed to leave just mirror finishes. So (laughs) yeah, we'll we'll see how it all turns out. It's a two flute. It wasn't that much more expensive than like a Destiny or something like that either. So I'm looking forward to trying it out. And then I have one of their just standard three-eighths mills coming in as well to try out just because I've heard really good things about Frasier.
1: Yeah, I've been trying to work work on surface finish for ball end mills, and there's something that I don't hear people talk about that often, but as the flute count changes, the number of cutting flutes at the, basically at the very tip of the tool changes. And so depending on whether or not you're surfacing mostly on a horizontal plane versus a vertical plane, the number of flutes makes a huge difference in the surface finish. Oh yeah, yeah, um, it really does. So like, I really love three flute tools for end mills, but the three flute tools only have one cutting edge on the tip. And so if I'm surfacing the top of something, a two flute leaves a much better finish than a three flute does. But alternatively, if I'm more vertical, then a three flute is leaving a better finish than the two flute does. So it's like, you have to sort of assess the part that you're making and what parts of it you want to look the best and then pick the tool for it.
0: Yeah, definitely. that was one thing too, that was interesting when I was talking to the apps guy from Frasia is when you pick a ball mill and they're giving you speeds and feeds in their online calculator, they actually ask for the angle that you're surfacing at and they'll mm. actually change the surface footage and chip load, depending on what part of the ball, like they're actually factoring in that the right, true cutting diameter, mm-hmm. which I thought was pretty unique. I haven't seen that yeah, at least in yeah. an online calculator before.
1: That makes a lot of sense, actually. Sort of like the, those, if you think about the speed of the tip of a spot drill is like zero at the middle of it, <laughs> that type of right. thing.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's why I always get the nasty little center of a spot drill of like <laughs> stainless or something. You're like, oh, yeah. that's,
1: that's gross. Yeah. It's nice. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but yeah, I'm still using a lot of helical for stainless tools. Like I just did some 174 the other day and they worked fantastic in that, but mainly destiny for aluminum. I'm using a little bit of Dave over at Carbide Cutting Tools. I love his five flute finishers for like my three, eight standard finisher in both machines.
1: What Uh, length of cuts do you usually go with on this?
0: So I I use a a one inch length to cut eighths finisher from him in a Uh Mari tool hydraulic holder. And then I've got one of his roughers, a three quarter inch length of cut by one and a quarter relief that's in a shrink holder in both machines.
1: Do you prefer the three eighths diameter just because of the reduced cost of the tool versus a half inch? For me it's more like
0: utilization. Like it's hard to in a Bt thirty machine to push a half inch tool hard enough where it makes more sense cost wise than a three mm-hmm. 8 Like I'm I'm going to encounter the limits of rigidity and the spindle with a three eighths tool long before it breaks, I think.
1: Cause I, I'm from my experience, the, I, it's called the gullet, right? Like the area that the chip escapes out of the mm-hmm. end mill. Yeah. Um, the, the added size of that on the half inch end mill really allows you to take a much bigger radial cut than a eighths. in my yeah.
0: experience. I, I can see that. We, so if, so if the speed I'm, is important. Yeah. It's, typically I'm taking less radial and much faster of a cut and that seems to be happier in my machines than a half inch tool, I think.
1: Have you, have you seen any comparison for tool life in doing it that way? No, I haven't. Because you would think that more time in the cut would wear the tool out faster, right?
0: Yeah. I, I mean, since I'm doing prototypes, it's really just about process reliability more than anything for me. Like, I don't think I ever, well, knock on wood, I don't ever break, break tools. It's, they just like start streaking or something and I don't like the finish and I throw them out.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm the same way too. But I like to know the re- the only reason I think about it is because when I do have, we have a couple of steel components and then if I know I'm going to do a run of a hundred parts, I like to sort of know like how many end mills I need to order before I start the job, <laughs> you know? Oh yeah. So yeah that's, definitely. that's, that's sort of what I try to keep track of. I don't necessarily care about that. The time it takes to make the part more so whether or not I don't have to sit and wait for tools to show up.
0: Yeah, that makes sense.
1: Yeah, I was really curious on the one-inch flute length because it's. I think a three-eighths end mill with a one-inch flute length cutting in steel would pro- It sounds to me like it wouldn't be that rigid, but I don't have anything to back up that thought.
0: It's not too bad. The rougher I have from Helical is not one inch, it's three-quarter inch, mm-hmm. and that's totally fine. Like, I've done 17.4, I've done 303. I'm about to do some titanium today with it. Like, it, it seems... Totally fine with that. I can't remember if I used the one inch length of cut finisher though or not, but th- that seems about where I'm happy with it. Like, I, I don't know if I'd go too much more length to diameter ratio.
1: What do you generally do if you do have a part that requires say like a two inch two inch high wall finished or something?
0: Th- then I step up to a half inch for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I- I've used some relieved ones. Like I just did this big heatsink part maybe a month ago that had. They were fins that were 1.6 or 1.7 tall, and I could only fit a 3/8 in there. And I was doing a lot of slotting with that. And with a relief shank one, it actually worked surprisingly well. Like I was kind of shocked at the surface finish I was able to get. I
1: thought slotting it was going to look
0: like crap. I was full slotting and then I was contouring the whole fin and did both with a, the same relieved tool and it it looked great. I was really happy with it.
1: Yeah. I, and I had a copper job that I did with an eighth inch end mill, a heatsink, And it was the same thing. I was like, well, this is not going to work long-term. It was like eighth inch end mill. And the depth of the slot was like, I don't know, maybe 300,000 deep or something. Like it was like deep for an eighth inch end mill and I stepped it down, but I was really impressed that like the walls stayed straight the surface finish was fine with the same end mill doing roughing and finishing.
0: Well, we can get on to, we had a couple of questions from Instagram. <laughs> Stacy asked you, what was your top Spotify artist of the year?
1: My top Spotify artist was Avril Lavigne. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <That's> <laughs> so a,
1: okay. In, in general, when I'm working in the shop, I'm mostly listening to podcasts and stuff. But if I have like those jobs where I'm, constantly moving and like loading parts and bouncing around between machines. I basically just keep something that's sort of upbeat and, you know, just sort of mindless in the background to keep myself moving. And that was my, my high school crush artist. So that's what I listen to when I'm trying to get a lot of work done.
0: (laughs) That's, that's totally fair. I I think we are all, you know, anyone around our age probably had the same crush at that time. <laughs> and then the other question, which I thought was a great one, was from Nystrom Performance. And he said, as somebody who's also growing a brand around internal combustion at engines, I often worry for the future. Will it even be legal to drive a gasoline-powered vehicle on the road in 20 years? Will all of my hard work developing products, fixtures, tooling, programs, et cetera, go to waste? How do you look at this potential problem while developing your parts brand?
1: Well, going backwards through that question, talking about You know your tooling and parts and whatnot being obsolete in 20 years everybody's tooling parts and setup and programs is obsolete in 20 years so if you're still making the same part after 20 years you've already gone out of business so most likely what's going to happen is internal combustion cars are going to turn from a commodity into a novelty and the ones that people think are cool, they're going to keep them running. And then as long as you're making products specifically for those types of consumers, I don't think that it's going to go away within the next, I don't know, 30 years, 40 years. I think that's still going to be a pretty significant amount of people that are driving internal combustion cars that they enjoy driving. You know, if you're, if you're making uh, replacement brake pads for a uh, 2012 Toyota Camry, you know, in 20 years, you're probably not going to sell any more of those. But I think if, as long as you're making parts for something that people enjoy driving, then there will be a market continuously, at least into the foreseeable future.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. And plus electric cars doesn't mean the end of performance parts. It just means the end of engine parts, you know, mm-hmm. like there's still suspension and brakes and steering wheels and you know, they still consist of largely the same components
1: mm-hmm.
0: so I, I think there's always going to be that opportunity like I, I was watching i think a hoonigan video or something and they went to borla and Borla's making like a, a speaker box system for electric cars that makes them sound like they have a, a hot rod motor in them and stuff and like granted i think it's a little bit kitschy but like i i think there's plenty of ways for automotive companies to pivot and embrace that new market as well
1: Yeah, I think the whole point is that it's not going to be an overnight change. So continue to build your company, doing the things that you enjoy for the cars that you like, and the opportunities to move and shift and change will probably be pretty clear. So as your business grows, you'll see new opportunities and you'll just sort of change into those opportunities. And then 25 years from now, you'll be doing something else a little bit differently than what you're doing now.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I think that I I completely agree. Like i I think many gearheads are worried about you know oh am I not gonna be able to drive my favorite car anymore? But you know that people are still driv- driving Model Ts and and working on them like the, the It's always going to be there.
1: Yeah. I think the biggest question mark is going to be government regulation on gasoline powered cars. So most likely it's just going to cost a shitload of money to register your car if it's gas powered versus electric. And then the cost of gas will most likely be much higher than it is now too. So you're if you're driving a gas car in 40 years, you're probably not driving it to work every day.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. I I agree. I think that I mean, I would be surprised. So I was looking at his page and he makes stuff for a lot of older, I mean, just like gorgeous 1920s, thirties cars Mm -hmm. and as sacrilegious as it is, I can, I can guarantee that there's going to be electric conversions of those in years and that like, they're still going to need most of the same components that he's making. Mm -hmm. So there's always going to be an opportunity, I think for this.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would imagine that that's already a pretty small market to begin with, you know, and I don't think he's going to see a ton of shrinkage in a market that's already been sort of, you know, shrunken down over the last hundred years to what, however many are left. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think those kinds of cars still hold the the same value and interest to the same kinds of people. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah.
1: Maybe some of those owners are dying off, but... I still think that there's always going to be a novelty in cars that have novelty. So
0: Yeah. Yeah, uh, exactly. Well, and I'm sure that you've seen kind of this up and down wave with the cars you service as well. Like the A eighty six kind of has peaked and, and valleyed quite a bit over the years and seems to be coming back again. You know, there's so many people interested in Japanese cars and eighty shit boxes and all that, so
1: yeah, we're in a weird time with vehicles and valuations and things like that. So it's sort of a, taking it with a grain of salt. But I think that the people that are that are spending more money on these s- seemingly oddball cars, it's genuine. I don't think that they're spending money because of trends and things like that. I do think that the upward pricing of these '80s and '90s cars that were seemingly, you know, throwaway at one point. I think that the interest in them is genuine and I don't think that that's going to subside. I do think that there will be a cooling off in the pricing of all the stuff, but I don't think the market's going to shrink.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. It it is crazy to see like even how parts have gone up through the roof because like that Altezza motor package you were talking about, like the Blacktop 3S with the J160. Like Brad and I used to look at them as like a possible swap motor into project cars because they were like, I don't know, you could get them on eBay for like a thousand bucks or something Mm -hmm. like that for a long time. And now they're double or triple that, it seems like.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but what you have to realize is that when that motor was a thousand bucks, all the other options were $3,000, $4,000. So that option is just turning into one of the other options. It's not necessarily that it is being, you know, price gouged or whatnot. It's just becoming more mainstream. So the reason they were cheap before is because they didn't think anybody would buy them. But now that they're popular, the price is just matching all the other popular stuff.
0: Yeah, I should have bought a few and just threw them in my garage for a while.
1: (laughs) You could say that about anything.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's very true. Well, that takes us on to shop news and new things. What else new do you guys have going on? Are, Are you looking at further machine purchases or any changes in workflow?
1: We're sort of For me, what I'm looking at is the organization of our product line moving forward into the next couple of years. This shifter really sort of threw me through a loop on organizing all of the assembly components and figuring out how to make sure that all of the components are available in stock. The pricing hasn't changed drastically between suppliers. We're mostly going to be focusing on stuff like that. So like product management, inventory, some of it is going to be process related in the shop. Like that. again, this one product, selling selling out 50 units in a couple of days is not something we're used to on our products. We'll generally stock maybe two or three months of inventory on a product. And then we'll just do another batch as it sells out but this product is sort of making it so that we have to figure out a process for how to maintain inventory of higher quantities how to make more of them without you know making one at a time just dealing with all of that stuff so i i think all of the stuff that's going on in the shop right now really isn't machine related it's not pro- not it's it's like a, lo- a much different problem than what i would have told you a year ago you know like a year ago i'd have been like figuring out how to keep all the machines running or figuring out, you know, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like in, in the moment problems, but now the problems we're having are more related to the growth and management.
0: Those are good problems to have though. Have you been looking at any kind of inventory management software or are you still managing it through your website or how's that going?
1: (laughs) Yeah, we're, I've sort of like picked around and looked at stuff and it's it's not even the, that that I don't know what software I want to use. It's sort of being congruent with Stacy in finding something that we can both work with together that works for both of us, because I'm fine with like numbers on spreadsheets and stuff, but she's much more visual when it comes to figuring things out. So she would be more like a Kanban type of person. And so what we're doing now is just trying to communicate with each other as much as possible to figure out what it is exactly that's gonna work for both of us before jumping into something, because I don't, I don't wanna pick something that I think is gonna work for me, but then she hates it. And at the same time, I don't want something that works super good for her, but then I don't know how it's working or whatnot. So I, I think that we're just gonna have to play with it a little bit.
0: Yeah, that totally makes sense. You, you... You both want to be at least a little bit happy with it because, yeah, they it, it would make going into work kind of a, a pain if you're just wor- using software that makes your life works or harder.
1: Yeah, because when I'm, when I'm out in the shop, I don't need a visual account of, you know, how many shifter kits I have on the shelf. But since she's dealing with customers and dealing with the packaging and the inventory and the shipping, like that's all she does is stare at all the products. You know, so her perspective of how to m- manage the inventory is much different than mine.
0: Right. Yeah. So you need something with like a machining m- module, but also has like a ERP or a MRP kind of front end for her. <laughs>
1: yeah. Something, something. So we'll see We're it's, it's gonna have to happen. So probably, you know, if I talk to you again this time next year, I will probably have something in place that we're working on. But right now it's sort of, we're still just scrambling and trying to physically organize as much as we can before we digitally organize.
0: Yeah, that makes sense Do do what you can without spending a bunch of money and and time and all of that. So
1: like there's other things that we can do manually to manage inventory. Like when quantities were low, we used to just have like for hardware, just boxes or bins, open bins with the hardware in it. So, you know, like a a hardware rack, and each hardware would either have an identifying number, or it would be labeled with what products it goes to and the quantities. And then when people would order stuff, you would just go pick all the hardware, put it in a bag and ship it. But as the product line grows, it's difficult to manage the hardware inventory without knowing, like if you have a 100 screws in a bin, but then you've got 20 different products that use that screw, you know, you only have three of that one product worth of screws if you're fulfilling the other products sort of like it's it becomes difficult to manage a hardware and assembly stuff when it when the same part goes to multiple products so we ended up having to start pre-packaging hardware and then now we can have a visual of we have 50 prepackaged hardware kits for this one product and then we can see okay well now we're down to 10 we can order more hardware or something instead of looking at a bin that's got oh there's 20 screws left in that bin but if there's one product that uses 10 of them you only have two products worth of hardware left over but i'm right. sure all of that can be figured with software as well but we're dealing with it the way that we can now
0: yeah it sounds like prepackaged really works makes a lot of sense and i'm sure it makes actually assembling a kit heaps easier
1: oh for shipping for her it's like it's been game changing because what ended up what There would have to be sort of a bit of quality control and inspection before on shipping. Like uh, you would either have to have a visual reference to confirm that you put everything into the package correctly and whatnot. But as long as you can pre-package everything, then there's sort of, you don't have to double check yourself.
0: That's great. That sounds like it was a win right off the bat then.
1: Yeah. So she's getting really good at that. She, She is much better at packaging and shipping than I ever was. (laughs) (laughs)
0: that's <laughs> <laughs> well, nice to have the you know the team working together like that for sure mm-hmm. well john that brings me to the last question i ask every guest which is what did you research this week
1: what, oh. i've been sort of looking into fixturing palletizing and even like pallet changer systems for all of these shifter components i know that like mitico has like direct replacement pallet changer systems for like my dm2 And I've just been trying to figure out what the solution is for doing higher volume on smaller parts, that's going to work for me, whether it's going to be like pallets that are manually being pulled in and out, or if it's something that I can bolt to the side of the machine that, you know, changes out the pallet by itself, something like that. So I've been sort of diving pretty deeply into the cost of purchasing like a quick change palette system versus like an actual machine that's changing pallets. Okay.
0: Have you looked at all like, a autom- like an AWR robot instead of a palette? No,
1: I don't think a robot's going to fit with our workflows as easily as like a palette changer does because I feel like there's more of an interface issue with a robot. You know, you would have to sort of interface it to whatever it is that you're switching in and out for each job and I I don't think that I have the time resource to figure that out versus if I get like a pallet changer system I'm just sort of duplicating everything that I have now
0: you know yeah, just that makes sense. time
1: times two of what I'm already doing and then it just changes automatically
0: do you know what those Mitico pallet changers cost
1: around they're pretty reasonable the so the dm2 one that they have I think is about $35,000 something
0: like that. oh wow that's not bad at all
1: no, it it's it,
0: significantly better than I thought.
1: Yeah. Very reasonable. And there was actually like a couple of machines recently on eBay, a DT machines that had the Miteco pallet changers on them. And they were selling for like 40 grand for the machine with the pallet changer and I was like, well, geez, and they look like they were obviously pretty, they were at a factory and they looked pretty used, but it's like, you buy that machine for 40 grand, steal the pallet changer off of it. And <laughs> then you've got a spare <laughs> spindle. That even if it is problematic or whatever, you can sell that machine for nearly what you bought the whole package for, if you had to get rid of it.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, that's cool. I, I'll definitely have to check back in, I guess in another year. Cause yeah, I was looking at uh, the last time you were on it, it was the 20th of last year. So we're like within <laughs> four days.
1: <laughs> yeah. So it's yeah, just yeah. going
0: to be the, the mid December JSP update, I guess. But that's great. I'm really looking forward to seeing where you go with that to make that easier for you.
1: Yep. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of changes in the business things are, it feels a lot, it's a lot better to be in a more comfortable shop than the tiny little shop we were in. There's obviously like a lot more expense that goes with it and that brings stress, but just coming to work every day and working is just so much nicer.
0: I bet. Yeah. I I think that we're probably gonna have to do that in the near future. Cause if we wanna get another machine, we have to have more power and more space and you know i i'm very much looking towards the next year or two and i think that we have to get uh, a five axis here pretty soon and so <laughs>
1: i like the, the the verbiage there the have to i have to have a five axis
0: well just to stay competitive and to be able to continue and and like the we're getting more and more work that is tighter and tighter tolerance mm-hmm. i'm like the brothers hold actually surprisingly well true position. Like I just did some parts recently that I was very pleased with myself and the machines that I pulled them off. But it would be really, really nice to have something where I can hit all the datums at once, any tight tolerance bore and just, you know, pull off a nearly finished part, even if it's two or three ops, I'd rather know that I've hit all the tight stuff right off the bat and be able to check it and not have to like, indicate parts in between ops and, and things I'm having to do to hit really tight tolerances. So So, I I think that I'll go for it.
1: So is it mostly three plus two stuff, just positional work?
0: I, I think it would be mostly three plus two stuff. Yeah, nothing really that I need five axis for, Mm
1: -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. but I, I think that for the type of work we're doing, it just makes the most sense. Like we're doing a lot of optical stuff, things that need to have holes on three or four of the sides and. Yeah, I just
1: we have a fourth axis now, right?
0: Yeah, except that machine's been tied up with production work more or less since I've got the fourth axis. (laughs) So it's maybe
1: maybe you'll feel differently once you start utilizing that.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm actually really looking forward to that. That's another if I have a a slowdown in January, that's another thing I want to get on there. I have a I have the 90 degree single sided trunnion from orange, and Mm -hmm. I'm gonna throw one of their devices on there and, and really get my workflow dialed in for that. I need to buy some longer tool holders too, because the first fourth axis part, I kind of built a fixture and thought, oh, I'm I'm way far away from the fourth <laughs> axis. And even with my longer ER 16s and, and 11s, I was like, ah, this is uncomfortable.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, what'll, what'll help you is if you change work holding to smaller work holding, that allows reaching the stuff better or easier. So like yeah, I'm sure you've seen like the more side stuff that I use. It's just like a little four inch vice and that makes, makes it so that it doesn't require long holding tools to reach your part.
0: Oh, this was just like spindle nose or spindle casting to fourth axis clearance issues.
1: Like the the point. physical rotary clearance? Yeah. yeah you, so could, that, you, could you stick your fixturing out away from the rotary face?
0: That's what I'm going to have to do now. Yeah, I, I'd stuck it out two and a half, three inches. Maybe maybe it was only two inches because I was only using a two inch length like, to cut end mill to make the fixture. Mm-hmm. So I think I'm going to stick out like an extra inch, and then I won't have any issues. Because the spindle's yeah. not that big on a brother anyway. But it was, it was still like, yeah, this is for my first fourth axis part in, in our shop. This is a little <laughs> a little closer than I'd like.
1: <laughs> yeah, I felt the same way when I first started doing uh, fourth axis parts. A lot of my aluminum tombstone ish proprietary fixturing that I've made has like the sides of it manually machined off, you know, as you're, Mm -hmm. cause like you're doing the job and you're like, well, that's not gonna work. So you stop and you just take your, your face mill or something and you just cut away at the fixture (laughs) until it clears.
0: Right. Yeah. You gotta balance that rigidity with clearance. Yeah. Constantly.
1: You think that your beautifully designed fixture is gonna work perfectly. And then you end up with this like half mutilated fixture when you're done.
0: (laughs) But yeah, I'll, I'll definitely keep updating instagram once i get all that going because i think that that is gonna be a big help for a lot of these parts just being able to hit even three sides of a part will be fantastic Mm -hmm. so yeah i'll definitely that will satisfy my urge for now while i figure out the rest
1: yeah the i the fourth axis has totally changed my workflow for anything that's more than op one op two like top bottom like (laughs) i i don't fixture any part I can think of for a third or fourth op anymore. Like it's all going on the fourth. If it's going to be a third or fourth op and you do one, two, three on the fourth, and then you do op four on a, you know, soft jaw or something. And that workflow just works incredibly well for even prototyping for, you know, just, just being able to swing a vice around just changes the workflow on complicated parts so much.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I bet you and actually Nick from this week as well, both have said the same thing that like fourth axis really changed the game. So yeah, I've, I've been, it's tough. Cause I bought the fourth axis thinking that I was like, mm-hmm. oh man, I'm gonna get to do so much cool stuff. And then, yeah, we had to throw on like this brass part right of the way that had all, the, had all these radial holes. So it was like <laughs> a real simple fourth axis thing. And then right now I've got some titanium work on there. It's like, man, I just want to get to play. Like I, <laughs> <laughs> This is not, it's not why I thought I bought it, but
1: okay. Is it? Are those brother machines similar to the Haas where you can easily add a fourth axis drive unit to a machine and then move the rotary around? Or is it a big deal to put the rotary from one machine to another?
0: It's not as easy as some machines I've seen. Like there's no quick disconnects in the whole thing. So you actually Mm -hmm. have to like disconnect the box. And I'm not sure about just like unplugging it and telling the machine it's not there yet. I still need to get with my service tech and see. I've been Really tempted to buy another fourth because there's another brother fourth in Mesa for sale. And I'm like, oh, I could add one to the F600 and then have it on both. But it's also nice to not have to worry about clearances with that one on there. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I I probably should just play with the one I have and and utilize what I have to the fullest and then go from there.
1: Yeah, I've been thinking pretty heavily about buying a second HRT fourth axis because of how much I've adapted my programming to use it. Where oh, when uh, I was I was just occasionally using the fourth axis. Now, like the VF2 with the fourth in it is like more than 50% of the workflow starts on the fourth axis now. So, oh wow. When so now if I need if I'm making a product and then I need to put that the next product into another machine that the program is utilized to use the fourth axis, I either have to wait, you know, wait to use it or whatever and so the more I use the fourth axis, the more I'm realizing that I basically need it in every machine.
0: I bet, yeah. Oh, well, it sounds like that's coming soon too. Then
1: maybe. <laughs> <laughs> they're 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 not crazy expensive, but it's also not super cheap. But luckily, no, the, it's not. The Definitely DM2 not. that I got already has a fourth axis drive in it, even though it didn't have a rotary when I bought it.
0: Oh, that's great! So you can just throw a fourth in there pretty easily. Yeah, just move it around.
1: And my the VF1 came with a 5C rotary in it as well. So all three machines can use, uh, any of the fourth axis or rotaries that I have.
0: Oh, that's great. That's super handy. Well,
1: Should John, be good.
0: really appreciate you coming back on and taking the time as always. It's great to get to chat. You know, we DM a bit, but it's always cool to spend some time just talking about everything that's been going on.
1: <laughs> yep. For sure.
0: And Patreon thank yous. Thank you to Jeremy for joining the Patreon. Let's me schedule awesome episodes like this with John and just get to spend the time and chat with more interesting people and hopefully let you guys all learn. And then yeah, thanks again, John. I really appreciate it. And thank you all for listening. I'll be back next week.